OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Okay, welcome to Supporters Fund Ask an Angel. I'm your host, Jeffrey Pogman, and let's welcome our investor for today. And that is Matt Fates. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? Very good. Very good. We're excited to have you on today. So thank you again for joining us. And the best way for us to kind of kick this off and to start is if you can share a little bit about your past background with the the multiple VCs and even before that, all the great things that, that you've done, kind of where you're at today. And then one thing about you that nobody would know. <laughs> okay. Um... So I was a computer science and economics undergrad and loved writing software, but was uh, self-aware enough to know there were many people who were way better at it than me. Um, so I initially went into, uh, wanted to go in technology business and the easiest way at that time was uh, technology investment banking. I uh, worked at Alex Brown initially and uh, worked on some really interesting companies, some of the early uh, communications equipment companies and, and, and software companies in the mid nineties. Um, and then found my way to venture in 98 and joined Norwest venture partners, uh, which today is a global firm at the time it was, uh, East and West coast offices in California and Boston. And, um, it was obviously a very fun time, right? Lots and lots of new startups, lots and lots of innovation going on, lots of you know, the Telecom Act had disrupted things in 96. And so there's all this new fiber being laid, all this new communications equipment being built. Everyone thinking, you know, the internet was going to sort of change the world instantly overnight. Um, and obviously, the, you know, that built up to the, the dot-com crash where they were right. It's just, you know, it's going to take a lot longer than overnight. Um, and so lived through that cycle. Uh, ended up joining another venture firm a few years later called... Uh, uh, Ascent Venture Partners, while I still am today. And at Ascent, we focus on early stage B2B uh, tech companies, you know, with a little bit of revenue, starting to scale. And we really try to work closely with a small number of companies to help them uh, transition from sort of successful startup to scaling, you know, full business um, and so on. We've, we've had the great fortune to work with some great entrepreneurs, great companies. Some have gone public. Many have been acquired. We have an active portfolio of about 15 companies today. Um, how many people know that uh, when I was young, I actually lived over in London and went to an English school and had to wear uh, knickerbockers as a uniform every day. <laughs> so a particularly ugly uniform. <laughs> oh, that's, that's actually uh, pretty fascinating. <laughs> So is, is it now a fear of yours that uh, you will never be caught wearing those ever again? Yeah, or you well, the last time I put on a pair of knickerbockers. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly the other, the other schools around London would make fun of us. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, well, I can imagine, especially back then, I think uh, the world was a lot tougher then too, right? So they probably didn't look at it as, uh, uh, probably didn't see a knickerbockers or thought it was something completely different. But yeah, it sounds like it would be a, Interesting engagement. <laughs> yeah. No, no. It was a neat, it was actually a neat school, very international, kids from all over the world, um, but, but horrible uniforms. 
Well, you learn from it, I guess. And uh, I'm sure you had some great memories from the opportunity regardless. Absolutely. Absolutely. Living abroad as a youngster was actually very valuable. And uh, getting to see the, the U.S. from the outside and, and sort of understanding others' perspectives was, I thought, a very valuable experience. I would agree with that. I think that it really shapes you as an individual as one being open to different cultures, but I think it also balances out your drive going forward. The things that you're focused on reduces that fear of what is the rest of the world doing and probably uh, more empathy towards other um, minority groups because you're in a, a different culture and you are a minority and you're adapting and all of those things. So I'm sure it's, it was pretty valuable. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, you, uh, you know, most Americans take a lot of pride in, in, in being American, but I think it helps see that, you know, there's some issues too. Far, far from perfect. And there's lots of things that could be done differently and you can learn from other countries, other cultures, et cetera, um, that, that might do different, you know, might, might do different things, different ways that are actually better. Agreed. Uh, I've been, uh, I guess as a footnote, I've been to over 50 countries and um, backpacked, lived different angles through it. And I can tell you that it, it certainly opens your eyes up to where cultures are, uh, where their businesses are at, where their startups are at, where the economies are uh, good or bad. Uh, you, you learn a lot quickly through uh, the way people engage with you as you travel and just as you know, the, you see how things are working there. So it, it's a pretty fascinating overall experience. And I think living there or not living there, it's certainly um, uh, pretty amazing to, to be able to experience that. Yeah, absolutely. Important to see the world if you can. Yep. So to kind of go back to some of the things that you talked about and kind of where my interest and excitement is, because we work with a lot of different groups from um, Shoe Lake MBA students, uh, placing them into business and, and figuring out what they want to be one day when they kind of grow up and mature in business. But what's interesting is I would say 10, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, there was very little interest in venture capital. Uh, I don't think a lot of people understood it. Uh, probably still don't understand it today, but there wasn't a lot of interest. And what I found fascinating about what you've accomplished is that one, you did this a long time ago, and then you got into a very rare space 20 years ago. Um, but it all started as being an analyst and then you progress from there. So how much of that analyst experience did you get in? Of course, when you're in banking and everything else, I find that they become the first kind of forerunners into investing in early stage companies because they seem to get business. They understand the numbers, the metrics. So there's a lot of that that pulls to it. But what got you to decide to go in as an analyst while you were a computer science person, which is obviously total ends of the spectrum, coder versus money guy. Um, but doing that analysis, working through that, and then deciding to take, a, take that leap into venture capitalism, how, how much of that two years experience or two and a half years that you spent there, how much did that really change? And what was the driving force that said, I got to get into this venture capital space? Yeah. Well, I was, I was lucky, even in the undergrad, and you were right, back then, venture capital was almost never in the news. Most people didn't know what it was. It was really only something that the large, large money managers of the world had some exposure to, right? And they'd carve off a tiny, tiny piece of their portfolio to put it in this risky asset class. Um, but I, I went to a university where 
the gentleman who ran the endowment uh, was a real thought leader and was very aggressive about moving money out of just stocks and bonds and into alternative investment vehicles. And he also taught a class where he would bring in managers from the different asset classes. So hedge funds, real estate, you know, uh, timber, debt, and, and venture capital to his class. And I, I was able to take that seminar from him. And um, his name is David Swenson. You know, he just recently passed away, but was really a respected leader of the endowment management world. And I, that's where I heard about venture capital for the first time. And it just sort of sounded like something that it was a really good combination of my interest in technology, but also in kind of you know, business and having portfolio, being able to work on more than one thing at a time. So that's, that's kind of why it stuck in my head. And, um, and, and going into the investment banking analyst program, right? as you said, you learn a lot about business, you do a lot of spreadsheets. You, you know, you, it's a great initial job in that you are exposed to a lot of work and you have to learn very quickly. But I also knew it wasn't what I wanted to do long term. It was way too transactional. Whereas what I loved about venture was that you really got to know the teams. It was more like a five, six, seven year relationship, not like a three or four month relationship. And, you know, if you could really help them and kind of, you know, help them achieve some of their goals, you could really, to some degree, become like an adjunct part of the team. Um, even though they're really obviously the ones driving the business, you could have a much closer relationship than you could as a, as a banker. So that's what, that's what drew me to it. It also, also, you know, late 90s was a time where the industry was expanding, growing. It was starting to become a little bit more well-known. And so it was a, a reasonably good time to get into the industry, right? Firms were actually hiring people at that time. And then when you kind of made that leap in and, and you made your way into the first firm, uh, was it a tough find? Was there a lot of them out there or you were kind of refined down to a few and based on your knowledge and background, it kind of helped you get into that, propel yourself in because being a developer, one, very few venture capitalists understand how code works or how tech works in that capacity, especially back then. Um, so I'm assuming you brought in a, a really good understanding of, of, of that base and that was a need that, that you could fill uh, that was probably super helpful. And it sounds like just the way you, you um, talked about this, that you are kind of a hands-on people person. So it makes a big difference in making an engagement work and being able to be effective through that analyst growth um, because you get to work with these founders and grow with them uh, versus just you know sprinkling VC money all over the place and hoping it sticks. So I think a lot of that carries a, a lot of value too. And is, is that kind of how you got yourself moving and perpetuating forward? Yeah, no, I think, you know, having a technical background is certainly helpful, you know, a little easier to have, you know, an in-depth product conversation with a CTO or, you know, a product lead when you, you know, you generally understand how coding works and how software architecture works and so on. Um, so, yeah, certainly that, that was very helpful, but I think it was mostly just having a real passion for technology and being interested in it and, and, and interested to see, you know, how can it and solve problems for businesses, for people. Um, obviously, as you start looking at lots of deals, you, you certainly learn that um, some aspire to solve problems, but they don't necessarily resonate with customers and, and others do. Um, and so I think I was also lucky in that the first, my first venture job 
I had a really great mentor, um, a gentleman named Ernie Parzo, who is a partner at Norwest Venture Partners that I work for. And, um, you know, he gave me the opportunity to sort of go out and really source deals and do research and try to help understand some of the new technology trends that were going on. Um, but he also would spend time and, you know, sort of share what he had learned and he'd bring me to board meetings and I could sort of observe him interacting and um, sharing advice and working with companies. And so having that, that sort of mentorship, having that sort of opportunity to some degree, um, you know, have him bring me along for those first few years of my career was extremely valuable. So I, I would certainly recommend any young people getting into the industry to try to, you know, try to find someone like that to work with. It's, it's going to be a, a huge advantage. No, that is, that's very valuable insights because, again, I think a lot of times people love the idea, want to get into it, start being analysts inside a venture firm. Now it's very competitive. Um, being able to get into a venture firm uh, and be an analyst is probably the toughest job you'll find because of the fact that there's many analysts, but not enough roles. Uh, because, again, it's a pretty tight ship on a, on a firm side because they're managing, sure, $50 million, $100 million funds, but there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's only usually that two and 20. So you're, you're we're kind of working against until you start getting exits. So everything's a pretty slim team. But once you're in there, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, great mentoring and opportunities. Uh, but you mentioned one thing, which was around the trending side. So as you've kind of worked through these two different groups, is it common uh, that a venture firm is really staying in tune with the markets and wanting to know where things are going? Like you kind of seen with... Um, Oh, what's the product called now? Uh, the chat one, um, Clubhouse. Yeah. So that one kind of just came out of nowhere and then all of a sudden was a billion dollar company and uh, only running on Apple. But, you know, the trends were that communication may have been going into stagnant mode and they needed something. And then this group came out of nowhere and started to kind of tear up the market. And then now the reverse is happening. They're kind of, I don't know if it's still happening, but sagging down in, in numbers because of uh, pandemic ramping up and people finding more time to get to offices and less time, I don't know, flipping their day through uh, conversations and jumping into Zoom calls and everything else. So maybe that was just the not right, the right trend, but it was the right trend at the time. Who knows? But uh, how do you guys or how have you guys looked at trending and has that been going on since day one that you're always trying to find that company that's bringing something a little bit more different and fantastic to the market and you're jumping on them? Or do you care more to see traction, uh, value build up before you would look at them as being a potential investment? Uh, well, yeah, you know, certainly I've always been a believer and this was instilled in me at Norwest and it's definitely something we've continued to send in developing a thesis and doing research and trying to find interesting companies. It's not the only way, right? It's certainly not the only way, but being proactive and sort of having a few, you call it sort of on, you know, active themes that you're excited about, interested in doing research, meeting companies, going to events, you know, reading blogs, listening to podcasts, trying to, you know, be really smart, trying to get up to speed, trying to know just what's going on at the cutting edge um, and figuring out, you know, who are the real thought leaders. I think that's very smart because that way, when you meet with a company, you can bring value to that conversation, right? You, you know who the comp competitors are, you know what the market dynamics are, you know, you've, you've 
been developing some feel for what customers, you know, get excited about, right? And that's a much more engaging conversation for an entrepreneur than when they're teaching you, you know, all about their, their market for the first time. Um, so I think doing proactive research, you know, around ECs is, is definitely an important way of sourcing deals. Um, but you also do have to be reactive as well. Sometimes, many times, people will come bring a new idea to you that you hadn't yet really had time to think about and you hadn't really focused on yet. You know, maybe someone in your firm did, maybe someone you know has, and you can, you can pull them in to help you kind of ramp up quickly. Um, and that's something we certainly always have done is thought about when you hear a compelling pitch is to think about, okay, who do I know that can help me evaluate this? And, and you know, who do I know that's really smart in this area that might be able to give me some time and, and, and help me get up to speed quickly? Uh, figure out what the right questions are to focus on and, and so on. But I always thought about sourcing in kind of a very fairly simple way. It's, it's either you know them, meaning it's sort of your network, people you've worked with before, people you've met, right? You always are, should be cultivating your network. And hopefully those people will think of you uh, favorably when they're, when they're joining a company or starting a company. Um, then there's the people that you go find right? You go find that you either know them or you go find them. That's the proactive work. But then the third category would be making it easy for them to find you. And again, that's doing things perhaps like this or hosting your own events on specific topics and bringing the community together to discuss that topic or just trying to make yourself accessible to that next generation of entrepreneur. Um, so I think all th doing all three of those things is uh, very important for making sure you're seeing, um, you know, sort of a diverse set of deal flow. So when you when you kind of talk about kind of working all of this, it makes me think of uh, well, I'm assuming baseball is still kind of the American lifestyle. It's part of their biggest uh, big culture side. Kind of feels like you're building a farm team up. You're working, nurturing them before they bring them to the majors, which is when you guys are going to invest. You have your analysts going out to all of the farm teams across the U.S. looking for best deal flow then they're working the deal, understanding how they're going to work and operate. And then once those are kind of fed into the system, you guys will then decide which one of those on the farm team are going to work their way into the majors, which is getting an investment from you guys. But it's kind of all staged through. You're working with these companies, learning about them, bringing in researchers, bringing in outside talent that can evaluate and give feedback that you may not have. Uh, sticking within your thesis, which is focused on if it's fintech or whatever that investment thesis is, while bringing in the right players to validate it. And then now you've got them in the game. They're not playing yet, but you're going to throw them out on the bench, get them off the bench and into the field. And that's where you're going to start coaching, working a lot more with them, putting more dollars into those companies and get behind them. Is, is that a fair uh, analogy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... It but of course, in venture, right, the, you might have to take it all the way to, I can't remember, I think the name of the film was something like Million Dollar Arm or something where the, the scouts go to India, yeah. right? They had developed a thesis that in a, a, a country of like a billion people, we're going to find some good pitchers. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it ends up working out, uh, of course, because, you know, cricket is one of the big sports that they love there. And so that's more like the trying to you know, develop a thesis around, okay, this looks like it could be interesting. I mean, clearly in venture, you're, there's enough firms out there today. There's so many more now than there used to be. 
There's probably some other people who have a similar idea, but still, you can you can be one of the uh, investors that gets that goes deep and gets smart. So it's more you're thinking outside the box like that while you're also paying attention to the standard farm system of of, of deals that come into you through your network. Um, and I would say, I mean, when I got into the industry, there were certainly um, I don't know. There were probably a few hundred active venture firms, but the total employment was, I don't know, 5,000, not a lot of people. Like a relatively small company would be bigger than the entire venture capital industry in the 90s. Today, it's definitely a lot bigger, but it's still not that large on a rep. I mean, I, maybe it's 20 to 30,000 people, but it's still, relatively speaking, there are many companies that have more employees than that, right? For sure. Well, you're looking at a venture firm that could be a $100 million fund and have eight to 11 people working at it. Or and less, you're thinking, yeah. Or less. And you're like, this is insane. How do you manage this? But it's all automation. But I, I think the best way to look at it is that when it comes to finance, you're always refining your finance model to make sure that you're um, as lean as possible because at the end, of the, you're deploying a lot of capital, uh, but you also have to run and operate it as a business, which means you have to be making money the people working in that business have to be making funny money. Um, and that's what's going to drive the whole thing forward. So I agree that there's small numbers compared to any company that $100 million in revenue. Uh, they're looking at, geez, 4,000, 1,000 people, 100,000 people. Like there's whatever the number can be if it's product or, or whatnot. But yeah, there's a huge difference from big business to being deploying big capital. So yeah. Well, and you know, people hear a hundred million dollar fund and they think, oh, that's a lot of money. And it is, but that money is supposed to be invested. It's not, it doesn't go to those partners, doesn't go to the people who work at the firm, you know, and I think you typically see, um, you know, if you're trying to, let's just say you're trying to do 25 investments out of a hundred million dollar fund, right. And you've got a team of, I don't know, three to five investment professionals and you've got a you know, pay your rent, you've got some technology expenses for the software, the computers and everything that you use, uh, get all the healthcare. It ends up being like, there's the salaries of those partners is not necessarily going to be all that. It's going to be good, but it's not all that exciting. So the incentive is all on the investment side and, and having that carry, having that upside on the investment side. And that's good, right? That, that, that creates good alignment with the people who invested in that fund and that these GPs really only going to make good money if uh, they do they make good investments, right? And there's good returns. So I've also, and I should have mentioned this up front, uh, Jeff, is that I also do some angel investing now, uh, which has been a lot of fun is, and really does allow me to sort of focus on the early, early stage. Um, and, uh, and so I've gotten involved with some of the, uh, the, you know, the sort of strong angel groups in Boston as well doing that. Um, and I, the difference there, of course, is that it's, you know, there it's just your own money and there it's just, you know, and, and what I love seeing today is that I think it's angel investing is becoming more and more accessible. Um, whereas, you know, 10 years ago, you probably had to be able to write, you know, 25, 50K checks minimum. Um, and if you wanted to have a diverse portfolio, you, you wanted to be doing 20, 30 plus deals like that, that adds up to a fair amount of money that a lot of people didn't have. Um, today, I'm, I'm, you know, I think there's a lot of ways through AngelList, through SPVs, through other methods where you can write much smaller checks um, of more like 
uh, $3,000 or less. And, and, and so it doesn't take as much to build a diverse portfolio and participate and start to build a bit of a track record as an angel investor. You know, it's, it's still real money, but it's not hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? So um, I, I, I love seeing that. And I think what it, what it does is it allows people who are, you know, working in startups, working in technology at the, at the sort of forefront of a lot of these new trends, they can actually participate as investors, which I think is very cool. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think it's amazing that, you know, the financial structures have been challenged, set up a little bit differently, opening up uh, to more to the publics and not always about accredited investors. I think the risk level goes up higher, a lot higher. Um, but I think from uh, using this as a, a method or a, a percentage, if it's 10% of your investment or whatever it might work out to as a startup, I think it's a great vehicle to certainly test and look at doing. Um, one, one thing that's interesting for me is that when I looked at um, from all the years that I've been investing and working with companies, I've, I've tested small, medium, large, and now you've got even smaller that you can do. And I started to think, you know, when you work on the metrics of it, having a diverse portfolio is great, but having a diverse portfolio of uh, $3,000 in a $2 million company and it sells at uh, whatever in say five years, it sells at 30 million or 50 million. You know, it doesn't go where you want it to, but it transacts. Is that the outcome that you're looking for? And, you know, that minor change, maybe it's now worth 10 grand or something at that component. Um, was that worth the effort time and three grand? Or do you kind of look at this from your thesis standpoint and say, you know what, can I invest more in four great companies this year than invest in 40 companies and take such a small, small minority position in them? Um, and I'm diverting my risk everywhere, but I'm also not um, really focused on the gains and focused on that company and specifically on helping that company succeed. So I kind of look at it as um, maybe it's too broad and investors are looking too broad. Now it does help, but on a cap table, it also doesn't help very well having 400 investors at you know three grand. Uh, so how do you, maybe there are a certain focus, maybe there, another focus is trying to find uh, investors that come in at larger portions. Um, one, it helps them move quicker to cleaner cap table, but also position-wise, I think it gives you, uh, um, as an investor, um, you're eating a lot more risk, but at the same time, the gain is a lot better too as they move forward. And you've got a lot more that you can help the company with. Yeah, no, I, I certainly, you know, as you, if you do move into angel investing, I think you should be thoughtful about and purposeful about what your approach is, right? And I know some folks that are very disciplined about, you know, focusing on a specific type of vertical or a specific thesis they have. It might be around, you know, crypto or it might be around data analytics or it might be, right? And they, and they just want to do that and they want to go very deep. And in those circumstances, I think it does make sense to kind of be a bit more focused and, and make fewer bets and they, perhaps they can be a bit bigger. Um, and then there are other folks, and I agree with you, it should never be a huge percentage of your personal portfolio, but if you really enjoy doing it, um, there's other folks who just want to back rate entrepreneurs and they don't focus as much on uh, necessarily the, the industry. Um, they, they want it to be a, you know, a, something that can grow rapidly if, if the right people are making progress and so on. 
So I think as long as you're purposeful about your, your, what your approach is and your intention, and then you kind of stick to that and hold yourself accountable, then, you know, both methods can work. Um, but you're right. You have to be honest that if you're, if you're just making lots and lots of bets, you're basically buying an index, right? And is that really the best way to invest in, you know, sort of a, an angel seed capital type index? I'm not so sure because, you know, if you get lucky and there's one or two massive home runs in there, it can make up for a lot of stuff. But overall, the average angel investment loses money. So you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be at the average, right? Nope. Average doesn't win in this game. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> it doesn't help you. But, and it's interesting that you go to the, the average numbers and things like this. And, and I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit on the, the VC side, uh, because I think there still is that misunderstanding of where a venture capitalist come in before an angel. And, and maybe you can share a little bit about where a typical VC would come in. Um, as an investment, when's a good time to interact with a VC if you're interested to reach out to them? And then uh, again, kind of summarize that with where the angel side fits in or where, where you see your side fitting in. And then I kind of want to dive into some metrics around the two, but uh, maybe share a little bit about that, please. Sure. Okay. Well, so starting with the venture side, I mean, venture, and there's now so many uh, more firms, right? They're there and there's there's pre-seed, there's seed, there's series A, you know, so there's, you have lots of different stages. And I, it, what it means is that, yes, there's certainly a lot more capital. There's a lot more people to potentially talk to, which is great. But it also means you really should try to do your homework around finding ones that are the right fit, that invest in your industry, invest in your stage, you know, that have sort of available capacity. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I try to always advise entrepreneurs, take a, try to take a shotgun approach. I mean, try not to take a shotgun approach. Use a rifle approach, right? Come up with a sort of dozen or so most attractive um, investment partners for you at the various venture funds based on what they say about themselves, the investments they've made, you know, where, they, where they're writing about in their blog or whatever. And it does take some more work, but I think that if you can do that, it's, it's like account-based marketing, right? You, you'll, you know a lot more about them. You can reach out to them, hopefully through your network or in a much more intelligent way than if you're just sort of, to some degree, blasting the whole venture universe. Anyone that you think might be an investor, you know, most people are just going to ignore that as noise. Um, so really trying to be targeted. And, you know, to some degree, you want to you want to raise your A round or you want to start raising your A round as soon as your seed is done. And I don't mean like lining up commitments, obviously, but I, I mean identifying who are the best Series A investors for my company and how can I start to build a relationship with them? And they can track my progress, right? And you could say, you know, I'm not raising capital right now. We've just closed our seed. We've got 18 months of runway. You know, but this is where we are and this is where we want to get to. And um, often, you know, the right VCs will want to engage in that conversation and they'll want to track you. Um, and they'll, because th for them, if they see you making really nice progress, they may want to preempt the process, right? They, they might want to sort of get to you before everyone else does. So that's, you know, people want to take an early look at good deals when they can. 
Um, so my advice on the venture is, is start as soon as your prior round closed, you should be thinking about who are my ideal investors and, and building that list and figuring out how to take your time to get to them the right way. Um, for angels, you know, I mean, again, the angel universe has grown dramatically. There's now lots of individual angels. There's lots of angel groups. Um, you know, I, I, I do say, I, I feel like the, I don't know, some of the crowdfunding stuff is a little scary to me and, and, and just that it feels almost too retail, too much broad exposure. Um, but if you're working alongside, you know, if you join a, uh, if you're trying to get in front of angel groups, again, it's the same sort of thing. It's networking to find a member that you might have a connection to, someone knows someone, or um, uh, using whether you're using a, you know, your school network or uh, the company you used to work for network, or but just trying to get introductions to angels and angel groups. Um, it's similar, but you know, but it's a little different. And angels are good in that they'll generally make decisions more quickly. Um, they'll obviously write smaller checks, so you should have a much lower target. Uh, but they can still be very helpful. I mean, I'm not the first one to say this. I think it was one of the guys at Launchpad that I heard this from, but it's absolutely true in that in venture capital, you have a lot of money, but you have a very limited number of people hours, right? You have a few partners deploying a lot of money. And so they have to be really careful about how they spend their time. When you, when you think about the angel community as a whole, they don't necessarily have a huge amount of money, but they have a lot of, there's a lot of people, right? And so if you can figure out who are the angels that care about what I'm doing and can be helpful to me, that's almost more important than how much capital they're going to give you. I mean, you know, hopefully you're only raising, you know, half a million, a million, two million or something in the early days from angels. And that, that's usually not too hard these days, uh, but you're looking more for the ones that can actually be helpful to you help you as advisors, they know your industry, maybe they can help you identify who the right VCs are uh, for the next round, um, things like that, right? Maybe those folks have been entrepreneurs in your space before and have had some success. So, um, and I think, you know, angels will come in at almost any stage, frankly. Well, I think it, that, may, that may be so, but I think probably majority of them that are angels are coming in before that, See, because the value gets too high and then they look at it as being not worth their dollars. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. I, I certainly see some that, that continue to look at later stage deals, but, but you're right. By far, uh, it's, it's more common where the early, early rounds are angels and these sort of micro funds. Um, and then you kind of graduate up to the venture fund. And, and don't get me wrong. There's uh, a huge opportunity for angels to go into a series B, C and D because they want to balance their portfolio as well, right? They want to make sure that if they're not going to get the success on the early stage companies, then they're going to get hopefully one of them on the more advanced going to market SPAC or whatever it might be uh, position so that they can gain a quick dollar and, and then keep investing in the early stage companies as well. So well, I that's, do right. I, that's why I mean, I think you should just be intentional around. Are you someone who's going to Again, your only criteria is I just want to back really good entrepreneurs in good markets. And if so, then I think you can look at any stage and in the industry. Or you can be someone who's very specific about, you know, I know other people who say, I only write first checks, right? I don't do follow-ons. I only do like, you know, the 
this is a very early stage deals and I only write first checks. And I just, I do it so that I have, I give myself the best chance at getting a hundred X outcome or whatever. Right. So um, as long as you have a strategy and you're sort of thoughtful about it, I think you know, that, that that's what makes sense to me versus the, the sort of reacting to things that show up. Agreed. And it makes a lot of sense in this kind of realm of early stage investing is that a lot of deal flow makes a big difference. Uh, and this goes from angel side or VC side. And, and how much in the VC side did, and you've done the same on the angel side by working with angel groups in, in the Boston area, how much of that access to deal flow has helped you refine the types of companies that you invest in? Uh, even though it is segmented to specific companies at that early stage and specific outcomes of how your fund is investing or the VC that you'd be running. So uh, did you see that there's a fine balance? Because top of funnel all the way down, you're kind of probably way closer to the bottom of the funnel. You're down to like five or 10 companies a year that have been uh, scrubbed to get to that position. Are you believing that that's the best mix that you're going after? And if you didn't have the top of funnel service that was going on and feeding you, do you think it would be a lot uh, tougher space to be part of and that these groups are really refining the best and getting them in front of you? Well, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, so one of the groups I work with uh, is called TBD Angels in Boston. And we, we've been talking a lot about this, right? You know, we have a group that's now roughly 200 people. And so there's a lot of deal flow that comes in from the different people. And how do you efficiently evaluate those and quickly figure out which are the ones that are worth spending time on? And we certainly have not perfected it, uh, but it's, it's something that we are, are talking about a lot. Like, how do you leverage the wisdom of the crowd to zoom in on, on, on sort of the best of the opportunities that come in? And I think there's a real, um, it takes real effort. It takes real work. I mean. You know, having great deal for all is critical to, to obviously end up making good investments, but just having a huge top of the funnel, it can become overwhelming, almost paralyzing, right? If you're getting 100 deals a day, there's, there's no possible way you could, as an individual, process that. Um, it's just overwhelming. Um, and so that's why I think developing a criteria where things that fall outside of that criteria just even if they're good, you know, you, you set them aside. And then for the ones that do fit the criteria, figuring out how do I quickly, and maybe it's by leveraging my network, maybe it's by working with a small team of like-minded people, maybe it's, there's, there's different strategies, but how do I take the ones that actually fit within the criteria and still then distill them further down to which one should I spend time on um, and, and so forth? Because um, I agree with you. I mean, I, I personally, one of the reasons I've kept doing this so long is that I enjoy working with the entrepreneurs. I enjoy trying to help them build their company, trying to, you know, be supportive in, in, in whatever ways I can based on my experience. That's, that's why I do this. Obviously, you do it to make money and, and all that sort of as well, but there's lots of different ways to make money. This is what I enjoy doing. It's sort of helping new technology come to market, work with great entrepreneurs and so on, and try to help them be successful. So. That's how I've chosen to try to make money. And so I invest in a way where I have the time to do that. 
and, and you know whether it's it's me being proactive or them reaching out and saying, you know, hey, could you spend some time with me on this? Um, usually, those are the types of things that you walk away from those conversations feeling invigorated and excited, and you know, and so on. I, I love that, and you know what? There's uh, even in the angel world, there's I would say it's kind of like a part-time, part-time role for most, most angel investors. They're running their own thing and this is a way to give back. Uh, but I, I, um, I guess I have another spot for the people that spend all of their time working with startups, investing in startups. And that's the role because, and I think we may have chatted on this before, but uh, it's the only job in the world where <clears throat> you can help push an outcome and you're paying to be there. So you don't get that in very many choices in life where you're paying someone to be part of their road trip and helping them grow their company. So the furthest thing from right now today is that one day they, this is going to pay me back, but I'm going to work my butt off to help these guys go from A, B to C. And uh, when that happens, there's going to be a great outcome. So uh, it, it's a, it is a strange model when you think about it. Uh, but uh, those are the people that put all the hard work in to help. And that's where you're going to get the best outcome. And which kind of steers into my kind of next question, which is, you know, statistically, and I, the whole reason on our end, we started a lot of this was because the stats to me make no sense. They <laughs> drive me crazy. And that is that one in 10 companies uh, will, fit, or will win. And I think about that. I'm like, who wants to work and invest in this stage if every company has a, Nine out of chance, nine out of ten chance of failing in the first year. I'm like, this is ludicrous. Um, and there's there is a lot of interest, and like you shared earlier, not a ton. Not everybody is uh, wholly focused on just angel investing, but all the way up the funnel, companies are failing at all different stages, and it's the data is mixed on why they're failing and where the fails are coming in. But if you took from your VC side in the Series A onwards. Uh, do you have some high metrics that is it seven out of 10 companies have failed um, and you've got a, you're hitting the standard 19 to 22% IRR returns. And then on the angel side, you're kind of just working through that because it is earlier. So one in 10, does that mean I got to invest in hundred companies to get myself 10 lucky, great companies or because of the passion and time you put in, you're able to change a lot of those outcomes, um, which they do share that uh, more active angels tend to have a lot better portfolio. But just from what you've seen to date in the 20 years that you've been heavily focused in this space, uh, any metrics that you can share that kind of shed a better light on what, what you've been able to accomplish or your um, funds and businesses have? Yeah. Well, so yeah, I mean, the, the data I've seen would say overall, uh, Series A and beyond, there, there's still a pretty, it's not 90%, but it's it's still pretty high. It's probably somewhere between 50 and 66%, right? Between half and two thirds that will lose money. Will they lose all of your money? I don't know, but, but, it, but you're not making money, right? Um, and then there's a, you know, a more meaningful chunk than, or a decent sized chunk that's doing sort of two to five X and then a relatively small number that, right, are the five to 10, and then a tiny sliver that are like you know, 10x, 100x. The thing that you do have to acknowledge, right, within any early stage investing, whether you call that Series A, C, is that 
typically, you know, the power law exists and a small number of deals end up driving a huge percentage of your returns. And if you can't get in at any of those big returners, your overall performance is not going to be all that great. Um, and that's why the, you know, the average individual deal loses money. But if you have in that portfolio one or two that do really well, it, it makes up for it. You know, I've seen data from different sources on, you know, on, on oh, and by the way, our venture fund. So our, our model was always to invest, you know, in a way, uh, and that's why we focused on sort of revenue stage and on enterprise and on sort of somewhat experienced entrepreneurs. And we wanted to invest in that sort of A, B range company, but greatly reduce the number of failures. And we were able to do that, right? And it's one of the reasons we were successful is that for us, instead of half to two thirds, it was more like 20 to 25% that lost money. Um, and so it just, you had much less of a hole then. And we still had a, you know, a healthy percentage um, sort of in that middle part, that was the biggest bucket that sort of, you know, two to five X, but you, you would still get a few that really did well. Um, on the angel side, you know, I've seen data from AngelList that suggests including all of their fees and everything, which are high on AngelList, I think, or, you know, they see average angel returns of about 1.5 X. I've seen studies more broadly and more generally that say you can do, you know, better than two, you know, sort of two, two and a half X. And then I've certainly seen angel groups who show numbers that are far better than that as their overall portfolio. So I just really think it, it, it does depend on uh, the, the approach that you take and whether it's sort of a, an index or a more thoughtful and, and focused approach. I think a lot of individual angels will, when they're honest with you, will sort of muse about, is this really the best way to make money? But they do it because they love it, right? And they, they love working with companies. They love sort of making that bet and kind of, you know, to some degree, betting on the founders, on those people, and then really trying to help them be successful. And for them, they, that's, there's value in that, right? They, they, it makes them feel alive. And, um, and so they want to do it even if it's not necessarily, they don't want to lose money, but they don't, making money is not the only goal, right? So. Totally, uh, totally agree with that. I think there was an article that came out not too long ago that was something like entrepreneur equals uh, psychotic or psycho or something like that. <laughs> and uh, I would take it one more step and put it that equal uh, angel investor is the same. And because predominantly most angel investors that I've, I would say that I've worked with or come across, they tend to be entrepreneurs. And maybe we throw a stat at 75% of them are entrepreneurs. <clears throat> well, and that's the case then they're just as bullish and crazy as the entrepreneur would be, which on the risk side, it's on the highest end. So they're going to be looking at, um, I love doing this. I'm passionate about this because my outcome is that I can affect the outcome. If I invest in Apple, they don't care what I have to say, unless I'm uh, um, Aikman or someone like that, that is putting in hundreds of millions of dollars into a company and they can move the dial a little bit and they have a say. But 
earlier on, that's where the investors get that most opportunity to shift, change, and build that company. So from a risk standpoint, it's quite high, but I think it also means that uh, every day I'm part of that risk. And I think that risk is really what drives that angel investor to keep wanting to invest uh, because they see the potential outcome and they're hoping for that and they're trying to work the wheel to get it there. But if it fails, it's they've already got 400 other irons in the fire and they're going to continue to work those angles because that's where they're getting that energy every day from. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's sort of the, I think there is a balancing act for, for whether you're an angel or an early stage VC or whatever. You know, you do this because hopefully you get a lot of energy, right, from working with entrepreneurs, working with early stage companies. And, you know, it's what gets you excited to get out of bed and so on. And that's very, that's very much true. It's very much true for me. It's very much true for people I work with. But you do also have to realize like, they're just not all going to work out, even if you want them to, right? And that's why you do have to have a portfolio. That's why, you, to some degree, you have to play the numbers game. And you have to be willing to accept that some of the ones that you love and some of the people that you, you know, the stars just aren't going to align. Um, and you have to be willing to let go. Um, and that's okay, right? And, and certainly, um, it's 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 not the fun part. It's not sort of what you, uh, you know, want to have happen. But I think you have to sort of accept. I'm I'm playing this knowing that it's going to, and so uh, I, I have to be thoughtful around. This is especially relevant for those that think about doing follow-on investing, right? You should be driving your follow-on dollars to the ones that really do have the most promise. And you should be really limiting your dollars to those that haven't, you know, shown any momentum or progress or what, for whatever reason, right? And you have to be pretty disciplined about that because it's it's usually the opposite of what's going on. Like usually, the ones that are struggling are the ones that need more money, and the ones that are doing really well, they can get money from almost anywhere. So it's 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 a lot easier through inertia to put more money into the bad companies or the you know the lower performing companies, which is the opposite of what you should do. And so. Again, something that you need to be aware of and, and kind of purposeful about is, is sort of, should I be putting more capital into these companies? I know I might love the entrepreneur still, but have they made the progress? Right? Very few people hit every goal that they have, but have they shown enough progress to kind of deserve this? Um, and I think that's, those are the judgments, frankly, that in some degree is almost harder than the initial investment is, is, is the follow on. And that's where I think having a lot of experience and judgment um, can be very helpful. Um, and that, you know, so that, that, that's where I think you have an advantage when you've done this for a long time. To some degree. I love that. I was taking down the line you said by judging your investments. I, I think that you're, you're right that there's a lot of disconnect on um, how harsh I review the companies that I've invested in. And sometimes it's, and this, I remember one time at a angel meeting, uh, they were talking about a founder and I kind of, uh, with the context to it, but I remember it's probably the only thing I've ever said at an angel group. And I said, look, you're not here to pay for friends. You're here to invest in companies that are going to grow. And, you know, maybe that was shocking to hear, but uh, I think a lot of the time you're looking at ways to tie yourself into the business, tie yourself into the founders and build that friendship. But really at the end of the day, you're there to guide, help and support. 
And when it comes to that reinvestment, they're going to knock on your door. And then the guilt or whatever reasons are that force you to invest aren't the reasons that should be, which is based off of the metrics, the numbers, and where that company is sitting. And I think we don't scrutinize things enough uh, because we've built ourselves into this comfortable, um, more of an emotional connection into what you're doing that you forget that this is a numbers business. And at the end of the day, your portfolio needs to work and metrics are the only way that it's going to work. So you kind of have to push that line. Like, don't get me wrong. There is always going to be some formula of, of matching of emotion and connection into the founders and the team. But at the end of the day, it's uh, if you're a VC or you're an angel, it still comes down to how do I value where the company is sitting? Did they hit the KPIs? Do they still have the scalability and growth opportunity they had two years ago when I invested? Uh, or am I just throwing my money away at this point? Yeah. No, and that's, yeah, I think it's very hard. And that's why I totally respect people who take the angle of, I'm only writing the first check. I'm going to take that question off the table, you know, and, and, and be disciplined about it because I do think it's a very hard decision. And you may know more, but you may not know a lot more sometimes when they come back for second or third rounds. Um, so anyway, I mean, I think it's, to me, that's a very, it's, it's a, it's because of the emotion that, that gets tied in as you build a relationship. Uh, it's very, uh, it's sort of a very interesting discussion. And it's, and it's, it's, that's where it's really good, I think, to have people that hold, hold you accountable, people, you know, partners or whatever to hold you accountable. How do you be direct without being cold? Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a lot of things that go into that relationship one-on-one side. So padded two by four was what one of my mentor used to call it. <laughs> Patty, what is it? But, but, be, but do it in a very polite, professional, constructive way. Yep. I love that. All right. Well, we're going to kind of shift our way through. We've got some rapid fire questions that we're going to ask, but, um, and maybe this, this one question is just focused on kind of some startups. And again, with your depth of experience, um, I'm looking for kind of like a story that she or he has gone through in your entrepreneurial journey that you see these companies and you just are amazed that this company should have failed. They didn't, they skyrocketed, took off the map, whatever it might be, but just what it shows to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, I think of one of a, I won't name the company because it's still an active company, but uh, company is, is, is Israeli founders um, and uh, had, had agreed to sort of move to the U.S. Um, they were in the, the mobile world, which moves really rapidly, right? And they grew really quickly for a while, but then that market started to change. And I was just amazed at how quick they were able to pivot to some degree. I mean, not, not, not like a totally different business, but leverage what they've done and, and point it in a new direction and continue to make really good progress. And then they did it again a couple of years later and they basically turned their entire business into more of a data business. And it's now probably the healthiest version of their company they've ever had. The margins are high. Um, they continue to grow rapidly. And so like it's been very impressive at, at the ability of this entrepreneur and of the team around um, him in this case to sort of read the market, make the call and make, you know, make the adjustments and to keep going. 
it's just, it's hard to do. And like, you know, watching someone do that successfully twice is amazing. Uh, so that's, it's, it's been very inspiring, right? And just the fact that they were always willing to question what they were, you know, are we doing the right thing? Are we, are we delivering what the market needs? Should we make a, you know, big change? You know, there's a lot of people who don't have the guts to do that. I love that. And I think uh, I read somewhere that entrepreneurs, uh, ones that are, uh, and I can't remember the term it was, or uh, very forward thinking is that if they're not blowing up the industry and trying to change the way it works, they're going to blow their company up because they, and they do this in a good way, but they're doing it because I don't know if it's boredom, but they're always trying to change the way something looks. So you're going to fix and be mindseted on changing an environment and selling more. And then once you start to make that shift, now it's internally, how do I keep shifting and changing and fixing and automating and making things better inside? So that would go back to our earlier discussion around following the trends and better understanding the market. And um, I used to use the term that I invest in psychotic founders, but people took that the wrong way. So I've had to dull that down, but it really does come back to people that really understand their space. And it sounds like this founder did. So that pivot wasn't probably anything that was shocking or off the wall, but what it did do is it allowed for that founder to be always continuously learning and building in the space so that when they needed to make that change, it was kind of seamless and maybe it wasn't as stressful on the second time as it was on the first. And they may continue to do that, but they found their space, which is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just, again, the ability to sort of, where a lot of people would be like, what? We're doing pretty well. You know, the ability to sort of say, we can throw that out, right? And do better. And we have to adjust because this market's going to change. Like that's just, there's an incredible amount of, um, uh, I mean, some people might call it a little crazy. So your word psychotic isn't completely a, but like if they hadn't, their business would be way worse off now, right? It probably, you know, it might be out of business. But the fact that they were willing to sort of to some degree cannibalize or give up or sort of, you know, totally shift their old business away was, uh, as I said, sort of took a lot of guts, but it was, it, it's because they felt like it's what they had to do. Right? It's what made the most sense. Um, so again, I think status quo, right? You, you, you can't be someone who enjoys, you know, things that are comfortable and things that are kind of make sense and are steady. I think in order to be a great entrepreneur, you have to be constantly questioning status quo, even your own. Right. So. Agreed. I love it. Uh, all right. We're going to jump into our rapid fire questions. <laughs> See how I do. All right, so it's pick one or the other. All right. Okay. First one, founder or co-founder? Founder or founder. All right. Unicorn or four-year, 10 times exit? I'll go with unicorn. All right. Tech or CPG? Tech. Brand or tech? Tech. AI or blockchain? AI. First time founder or two, three times founder? That's a tough one. I, I, I've probably had better luck with experienced founder. Okay. First money in or series A? Uh, I'm doing more first money in these days. All right. 
Angel or VC? Yeah, Angel. <laughs> <laughs> and this question is always different on each group. It's it's but in case you play in both fields, so it's fascinating because you have to actually pick between the two. So, um, board seat or observer? I'll take observer. All right. Safe or convertible note? No. Lead or follow? Well, I've done both. I mean, as an angel, you're typically following. Equity or interest payments? Equity. Favorite part of investing? Seeing, you know, seeing it work. Seeing the entrepreneur proven right and, and you proven right. <laughs> Agreed. Number of in companies invested in per year? Well, so as a VC, it was, you know, sort of like four or five. These days, though, it's, it's uh, more like uh, 15 or so. Okay. Preferred terms? Preferred terms. I mean, I like preferred. I like to invest in equity. Um, and so, but, but beyond that, it can be fairly straightforward. So nothing, nothing too fancy. Okay. Uh, verticals of focus? Most of my experience is on the B2B side. I've done a lot in things like AI and data analytics and security. That's, that's what I know. That's where I'm most comfortable. Okay. Uh, startups, on the startup side, what makes them stand out the most to you? It's usually the, the founding team, you know, people who are truly compelling and that you just feel like, God, I want to invest in that person. Um, sometimes it's, you know, there's a really, really special kind of business model, but it's usually the people. Okay. All right. Now we're going to jump into the personal side. Same thing. Book or movie? Uh, a good book is, I mean, it's hard to beat, right? You lose yourself in it. Superman or Batman? <laughs> Superman. Pizza pop or ice cream bar? Ice cream. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Oh, I'd probably go with Bezos. Arsenal or Manchester United? <laughs> Chelsea, Chelsea, Chelsea. That's why you still live. <laughs> nice, nice. I, I, uh, I. I'm trying to find Arsenal fans. I found one the other day, so that was uh, all the interviews. <laughs> I'm not was... against Arsenal. I just I used to live in Chelsea. <laughs> I, I I actually watched a Chelsea Chelsea Arsenal game. Uh, well, I watched Chelsea play and Chelsea. This is a couple three years ago, uh, so it was pretty awesome. This is when they rocked and they were amazing. Oh, the year that they were doing not so great, and uh, the fans. It was so boring. They were just like Chelsea. I think everybody was so mad. That <laughs> no hard in it. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Bike or rollerblades? Bike. Big Mac or Chicken McNuggets? Big Mac. Trophy or money? Money. Beer or wine? Beer. Alarm clock or mobile phone? Alarm clock. Hotel or hostel? Uh, I think I'm past my hostel days. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Based on all the things that have been happening with Trump, does he, does he go to jail this time or is uh, he free? Yes or no? 
Uh, yeah, I don't think he'll end up in jail. I don't know. He certainly deserves something, but I don't think he'll. I don't think it'll actually play out that way. I just he's too. He somehow slips out of everything. Yeah, he's a bit of a magician. He really is. I mean, it's how the fuck did he get elected in the first place? I mean, the guy anyway. <laughs> I don't know. The other hundred. 100 million uh, Americans thought that it was worth them coming in there. No, I, I know. I mean, I understand the dynamics that, that put him in power, but still, like, how is he the candidate? Because he's just... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, he's that beyond psychotic uh, entrepreneur, I guess. All right, last three questions. I think I know the answer to this one. Favorite sports team? <laughs> <laughs> Favorite sports team? Actually, it's not what you think. It's the New Zealand All Blacks. Oh, all right. Nice. Yeah, they're a great team too. Yeah. Okay. All right. I thought Chelsea was coming in, but that's all right. All Blacks are worth watching. They're a lot of fun. They got a lot of energy. They are amazing, yeah. Favorite movie and what character would you play in the movie? Favorite movie? Well... I don't know. I mean, one of my favorites is called The Natural. And so I'd probably want to play The Natural. (laughs) Robert Redford's character. Yeah, I thought that's who that was. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah. Was that a baseball movie or no? It was. It was a baseball movie. Okay, yeah, I remember that. I probably haven't seen it in 20 years. It's a uh, classic movie. All right, Definitely. Gonna... It's about as cheesy as they get, though. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. He hits the ball, and the lightning strikes. And... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm sure there's some realism somewhere in there, but uh, that's all right. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of like good and evil in there. Like, you know, they anyway, it's it's a little cheesy, but it's it's, it's a classic. All right. Last question. What is your superpower? Uh you know, I think my superpowers is really around um, sort of bringing people together around, um, you know, whether it's, it's around sort of new companies or uh, events or but I, 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 I love networking. I love making, you know, connecting people together. Um, I definitely believe in sort of the wisdom of the crowd to some degree, right, if you use it the right way. Um, I definitely, you know, when done right, I think the whole can be greater than the sum of the parts sort of thing. I'm definitely not someone who wants to try to do everything themselves. I like it. I like it. It's kind of like that herd mentality side of things, bring everybody together, lead the way, and uh, hopefully everybody connects. Well, yeah, and there's some great, you know, there's been some great recent research on, uh, by, by some of the leading, you know, one of the the best behavioral psychologists in the world, uh, Daniel Kahneman out of Israel, wrote another book uh, called Noise. And some really interesting stuff in there around individual judgment, right? Our individual judgments can be widely, you know, varied based on totally irrational things like time of day, weather, you know, what we had for breakfast, all this stuff. And it's actually really scary when you look at some of the analysis that's been done of the judicial system and, and how outcomes can vary so much on stuff like that. But when you, when you use the wisdom of the crowd the right way, and you use, you know, if you get together a bunch of smart people and you can figure out how to get the right insights, 
um, it could get rid of a lot of that noise, I think. So that's just one example of so why I'm excited about leveraging the wisdom of the cloud. I love it. All right, awesome. great talking to you, Jeff. I'm going to look up these books, all of this stuff. But uh, I want to thank you, Matt, for joining us. Uh, awesome conversation. Again, like I have to show, I take a million notes, but uh, lots of great things there. Very insightful. I appreciate all of your time. And what we like to do on the show is to end it by allowing and having you share the last words, which is anything you want to say to the founders or to investors. I turn it over to you. But again, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, well, I'll just say, you know, keep doing what you're doing. It's great to, you know, get people talking and to, you know, sort of help this ecosystem along. Um, you know, to the founders out there, I guess it's just, uh, I, I have a lot of respect and admiration for uh, sort of the bold leap that you've taken in starting a business. And, you know, whether, you know, I invest or not, um, you know, I, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, and, and it's definitely what drives, I, I mean, I just, I, I love thinking about the future, right? And I love thinking about um, uh, the next generation and, and all that sort of stuff. And so for me, uh, folks that are trying to kind of make a difference and so on, it's, it's inspiring. I love it. Well, again, thank you very much for sharing all of this. I think we broke a record for the longest time I've talked on the podcast, but man, there was a lot of great insights. So thank you very much. Okay, that was some uh, great insight shared by Matt um, and everything from following trends, building your interest and thesis, you know, getting down to that competitive edge through um, leadership, diving in, understanding the market, the competitors, uh, and just all over power law, um, how helpful and, and important it is for angel investors to invest in the company. Uh, even to uh, the book he was sharing about noise, uh, the psychology uh, from Daniel Kahneman uh, out of Israel. Uh, man, just so many great notes that I've got here. But, um, you know, even the, the best on his line was uh, judge your investments before you invest or reinvest. You know, make sure that you're calculating and, and doing it for the metrics and the numbers. Uh, but outside that, uh, thank you very much uh, again, everybody, uh, for joining us. Uh, if you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. Uh, you can check us out at supportersfund.com or for startup events, visit opn.ninja. Thank you very much and have a fantastic week.